Innovators in the music industry are thinking deeply about what's next and how to be a part of it. On Voices Behind the Music, you'll hear from some of the most influential voices in music about how the industry is changing and what the future might unfold. Today, we are here with Professor Costas Karagiorgis, the leading researcher at the intersection of fitness psychology and music. Professor Karagiorgis is the professor of sport and exercise psychology at Brunel University, London. Today's podcast is especially exciting for me because Costas has spent over 20 years researching the effect of music on exercise. In fact, we've already teamed up with Costas and released a white paper this year in January entitled The ABC of Music in Exercise, Effect, Behavior, and Cognition, in which Costas releases a goldmine of scientific data reinforcing that music influences exercise in profound ways. He shares data that the right music at the right time pumps people up before a workout, distracts people from fatigue while boosting efficiency, and improves the mood after exercise. And you can find this white paper in the free guide section at FeedFM. These are concepts that may seem intuitively obvious, but Costas has the data to back it up, and we'll talk about this later today. He is the author of two textbooks on human kinetics, has written extensively, meaning literally hundreds of papers and articles in sport and exercise psychology. He's put his findings into practice, having coached multiple championship university teams and is an accomplished jazz piano player. So we are thrilled to have this renaissance man, researcher, and overall rad dude to the podcast today. Professor Kara Georges, welcome to Voices Behind the Music. You'll have to translate that rad dude. I'm not sure that's in my lexicon, Jeff. Well, it's a good thing, but uh, thanks so much for being here. And and for starters, tell us, what are you working on right now? Right now, I'm doing some really exciting work on how music influences oxygenation in the brain. And essentially, uh, just in the last few years, modern technologies have given us real insight as to how music affects the brain during exercise. And there's one particular technology that I'm really interested right now which is known as functional near-infrared spectroscopy. (laughs) I know that's a bit of a mouthful, but essentially the technique entails shining infrared lights through the skull into the brain, and it allows us to see areas of the brain that are oxygenated and deoxygenated, meaning that we can tell just how hard the brain is working through various Mm. types of tasks. Now, I have this theory, and I don't want to (laughs) say too much about it publicly, that essentially the presence of music influences the oxygenation curve in the brain. And given that this has never been examined, it's a central question that I'm examining right now. What do you mean by oxygenation curve? Well, essentially what I mean is that the presence of music extends the time before certain areas of the brain dip from being oxygenated and let's say well-nourished to Mm -hmm. being deoxygenated and thus leading the human organism towards fatigue. Do you think that music affects the way we breathe, which in, in essence changes the rate at which deoxygenation occurs, or is it the actual music itself that potentially changes something happening in the brain? 
Well, I think what is happening is that music is influencing our emotional or affective response. And so we feel pleasure for longer. Feeling that pleasure often means that the brain has to work a little less hard. It needs slightly less oxygen as a consequence. That is amazing, amazing stuff. And are you putting this into practice with some of the athletes that you work with? Or tell me about the testing process. What happens in your lab? Yeah, in this particular area, I think that practice has been coming before theory and before a scientific investigation mm -hmm. for many years. And that is because since time immemorial, we've realized the power of music, be that a mother singing to an infant to calm it or soldiers using rousing music to enter battle as the Spartans did, or be it somebody whistling a tune to dissociate from the pains in their life. We know intuitively that music has an effect on us. But really what I've been trying to do, particularly in recent years, is to understand why that is, to take an under the bonnet mm. approach, to look inside the brain using various technologies to really see what is happening at a mechanistic level. To answer your question directly, in my lab at Brunel University London, we have of course conducted many, many behavioral type studies where, for example, we work people to exhaustion and mm. see how they perform with one type of music versus another versus a, a, a control, or we change the type of music application. So the music might be before a task, what we call a pre-task application. It might be during a task, either synchronously where there's conscious synchronization with the music or asynchronously where the music is playing in the background. On other occasions, we've used music as a recuperative tool after exercise to see whether it speeds up or it expedites recovery processes. A lot of those behavioral type studies do show positive findings. But of course, the central problem in any kind of music research is that you cannot use what is known as double blinding, wherein the participant is blind to the intervention and the researcher is blind also. And therein lies a limitation that pervades all scientific work in this field. To reach some sort of objective truth as to how music influences the human organism and the human brain, we use techniques such as uh, electroencephalography, where we measure electrical activity in the brain. We use uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is a great technique because it gives us great insight into what's happening deep inside the brain. So the other forms of neuroimaging are quite superficial. But as well as that, we're able to use other scientific techniques, such as um, electromyography, to understand what is happening in the muscle while we listen to music. And on occasion, of course, we've used such techniques in parallel. So for example, we've used electroencephalography and electromyography together. And one novel and really interesting finding to emerge from that line of work was that the presence of music during exercise changed the firing of clusters of neurons the synchronization, desynchronization, and resynchronization of key clusters of neurons in the brain associated with movement were altered, wherein the, the frequency or the rate of the firing was lessened, so it was less frequent, but when the neurons fired, they did so with greater amplitude. And the messages mm. that we were picking up in the brain were actually echoed in the muscle 
that gives us tremendous insight. And and when you talk about hitting a flow state, being in the zone with music, of course, we know intuitively that that sometimes happens. But using such scientific approaches really helps us to understand why. That is amazing stuff. And one of the things that we spend a lot of time thinking about is the concept of personalization. And we have a lot of clients and partners in the fitness segment. And sort of the holy grail is to provide the right music to the right person at the right time. And I'm wondering if the rate to which, in your example, the muscles contracted or responded in an elevated state is different as you change songs or has any personal characteristics? That is a really insightful question, Jeff. And uh, I'm afraid the answer is not necessarily simple because there are universal properties of music and there are psychoacoustic properties that cause us to respond in certain ways. And those ways of responding can be universal. So it it was long thought, for example, that um, if you had a preference for a given piece of music, it would lower your perceived exertion during exercise. And I believe this too, very early in my career when I started out 30 years ago. But having done many, many studies into this and with uh, different forms of music, I've come to learn that really any type of music will reduce perceived exertion. You don't necessarily have to have a preference for it. The margins of gain are accentuated if you have a particular preference for the music. So if it stems from your social cultural background, if it's the sort of music that your peers listen to, maybe it was even the sort of music that your parents listen to, and it's music that you have a relationship and association with, then its effects are magnified somewhat. So if I were to quantify this for you in terms of perceived exertion alone, which is one variable that we look at a great deal, on average, music will reduce perceived exertion by about 10%. That only works at low to moderate intensities of exercise. Any piece of music will lower perceived exertion by about 8%. And a preferred piece of music will lower perceived exertion by about 12%. So you can see that there is some variability there. Now, there are universal properties such as the rhythmic accentuation, whether the music is syncopated or unsyncopated, the tempo of the music, the harmonic structure. Of course, music with major happy type harmony will have the tendency to elevate our affective or emotional state. And music with a minor tonality will have the opposite effect. Interestingly, although this tends to be a universal in Western culture, there are many Eastern cultures in which the use of the minor tonality, particularly at a high tempo, is associated with deeply pleasurable and meditative states. So there are um, cultural variations and there is conditioning that takes place through culture. So Although some aspects of this are universal, such as tempo, such as volume, there are other aspects wherein there are subtle differences, such as the the major minor modality. But also, if we think about a major component of music being the lyrical content, if most people who are English-speaking listen to Spanish or Italian music, they associate that with romance and love. But of course, somebody who speaks those languages will understand the nuance and may have entirely different associations. 
Similarly, if we take Latin American music and Cuban music in particular, such as salsa, which is highly syncopated, if you use salsa music with an exercise class in Northern England, you will see people at sixes and nines struggling to keep up with, with the tempo. But if you go and watch an exercise class in Miami, everybody's in perfect sync with it because essentially they've grown up that is, with that type of music. That is amazing. So there is a cultural bias to music and how it affects an individual. Can you talk a little bit about trends that you are seeing with music and fitness? Do you talk to fitness companies, meaning like the tonals and the mirrors of the world? And, and in some ways, do you ever work with them consulting about the use of music and fitness to have that perception? Are you seeing any trends that we should know about? So I, I talk to fitness companies almost every week and also agencies that uh, license music. So there is a deep interest in the science of music and exercise. In fact, the science of music and exercise is an adventure happening all around us right now. It is an area that is really proliferating and gaining a lot of interest. Interestingly, when I started out, people thought I was really foolish and they tried to discourage me from pursuing this line of work and said it, it would never amount to much. I'd never make a career out of it. But I knew back then when I saw the power of what people like Jane Fonda were doing and the popularity of the Sony Walkman, that things were set to change, particularly with new technologies and personal listening devices becoming ever more ergonomic. So in terms of my interactions with the industry, some of the um, key points relate to the personalization of music programs and understanding a range of personal variables and how they feed into selection. Centuries ago, the celebrated Roman philosopher Lucretius said that one man's meat is another man's poison. And if we translate that into modern day parlance, one person's music is another person's noise. And so clearly for any technological company, they need to be savvy to the variables that feed in to people's music preferences, the intersection between a modality, a type of exercise, the intensity of that exercise, and a range of personal factors, and how to mm -hmm. marry these different facets in order to optimize a music program. So it is about that seeking the peaks and troughs of a workout, marrying the music to the client, optimizing the qualities of the music for the mode and intensity of exercise, when to use music, when not to use music, how music can be used to enhance group cohesion, particularly in an exercise class, how people with different types of personality can optimize their use of music. That is fascinating stuff. Again, to just go back on this personalization element, I mean, part of what we do at Feed, and we actually have to do this by law uh, because there are some specific rules around the frequency of, let's say, a particular album. We can't play it more more than a certain amount of songs in a, in a prescribed period uh, to be in compliance with the internet radio statute in the United States. But what is really fascinating is the next phase that we're starting to think about, and no one is really doing this to my knowledge, except maybe you, but is to actually, on a personalized level, specific songs 
for a specific individual can create improved performance. Does a particular song work for one individual? In other words, have them always listen to that song before a game or whatever. Yeah, I'd say a couple of things in response to that. Firstly, it's certainly something that we've been researching maybe for the last 10 or 12 years. One of the projects that I've been working on recently concerns creating bespoke pieces of music for individuals, wherein I analyze their music library, I run a series of personality tests, I also test in the lab how they respond to different pieces of music under different circumstances, And on occasion, I've even had the opportunity to work with their favorite artist in the studio to come up with a track. I did just that for the Olympian, Di Green, who was Great Britain's track and field captain at the 2012 Olympic Games. His uh, agency linked me with his favorite artist, Red Light, and we came up with a track called Talk to the Drum. Hopefully your uh, listeners can find it uh, online and uh, have a listen themselves. So Di use that track en route to the Olympic Games and in the cauldron of Olympic competition as well. So that's where the future might lie, bespoke music. Love it. That is an awesome story. But I want to add a really important caveat to that. And this is something we've known about since the late 60s, um, early 70s, with the work of the very famous psychomusicologist Daniel Berlin, is that there is an inverted U relationship between exposure to a given piece of music and the degree to which you like it. So as a tracking company, you need to know where you are on that inverted U. Because if you're tracking likes on the way up towards peak liking, then clearly you are encouraging and you are feeding an individual pieces of music in a very positive way. One that is likely to feed in to their performance and pardon the pun there. But if you, if you catch them on the, on the uh, downward curve of the inverted U, of course, you can be having the converse effect and you are causing boredom and irritation through overexposure. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, and that kind of gets to another interesting topic, which is around kind of the degradation of a song, right? How long is a song interesting or still exciting for an individual? How long do I like this song? It, it amazes me that some tunes are able to last 52 weeks at number one or whatever, because there's just a natural decay. But you're saying that you're able to actually monitor decay for each in at, at the individual level. You can monitor decay at the individual level, but I have to say, uh, to respond directly to your question, It's not just about the individual because there are inherent qualities in music that determine their shelf life. So if you take bubble, typical bubblegum pop, maybe of the sort that is produced by an artist such as Megan Trainor, Megan's music is, is immediately appealing and strikes a chord with people, but it's difficult to listen to it in perpetuity. If you take um, a group such as Queen, for example, there is such subtlety, such intricacy, such artistry in their music that you can listen to it repeatedly and always hear something different. Much of this has to do with artistry, with aesthetic, with harmonic progression, rhythmic complexity. And these are also factors that we give a lot of attention to in our area of research. 
So let's use that as a segue to talk about your love of jazz. I'm a lover of jazz as well. And one of my Desert Island albums is, of course, Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. But jazz is, it, it pains me to say this, but there are times in my journey that I have described jazz as a dying art form. It could be because it is, in my view, the antithesis of the bubblegum pop Megan Trainer reference that you just made. It's highly complex. It requires, in many cases, a, a degree of training to understand the complexity. And for many, it's not very approachable. Would you say that complexity is that fundamental driver of shelf life? Gosh, you've got me talking about a topic now that I, I really love. <laughs> How long have we got? As long as you want. You, you cited um, Miles Davis, uh, Kind of Blue. That is the archetypal jazz album. And if anyone were to use an entree into the jazz world, I think that would be it. I totally agree, but keep going. Now, this notion of uh, complexity is a salient one. And of course, there is a great deal of complexity in jazz. It's complex in terms of its harmonic structure due to the extensions of chords that are used. It's complex in the way that chords progress. In many instances, that harmonic structure is pulled apart and distorted and then brought back, and people can find that challenging. There is speed play. Jazz can speed up and it can slow down. So you have accelerandos, ralentandos. People play with the time. There are huge amounts of syncopation or offbeat feels where sometimes playing in a jazz quartet, you hardly know where you are because it, it, it's so syncopated. And it has this strong improvisational quality that often plays with melodic themes to a degree that they are inverted or repeated in different keys, or there are some slight shifts made in intervals within the music. So you have a lot of variables that are changing simultaneously in jazz. And that, of course, creates huge complexity. Jazz is not the optimal music for an exercise context. It's um, very difficult to find a solid beat in jazz. It takes a great deal of processing. And so if you're working out at a high intensity, the afferent nervous system, the, the nervous system that delivers messages from your working muscles and your vital organs to the central processor, is loading that central processor. And to then have to process a very complex art form simultaneously is very difficult indeed. Generally speaking, jazz and exercise, they don't mix very well. And in my life, they've certainly happened separately, but it is for me the ultimate form of music. It, it's so indulgent, so beautiful. It has so many different textures. I, I, I never tire of it. And of course, every time it is performed, you take any standard such as take five or take the A train or a kind of blue or whatever it might be. It's always different, always yep. changes, always uh, metamorphosizing. Uh, and for that reason, it's been a, a long running love affair for me, for you and, and for many others. Now, are you, are you still playing? Are you still gigging? Very much so. Very much so. Albeit the um, hiatus general of the pandemic put pay to, to hooking up with my fellow musicians and, and playing out live. It's just beginning to gather momentum again. 
but we still no, we still have a bit of a COVID issue here in London, yeah. so I'm still sort of erring on the side of of caution. But um, caution. Yeah, yeah, I hope over the next year we can get back into the groove, quite literally. And, and are you playing more? Are you playing standards? Are you doing original? Are you writing at all? Or most of what I do would be maybe taking a standard, picking it apart, doing it in okay. quite un unusual ways, maybe with what we call quartile chords or outlandish scales in different um, rhythmic patterns and such mm -hmm. like. So maybe sometimes pulling it apart and then bringing it back together or taking songs from the pop culture. Mm -hmm. Bill Withers is one of my favorite artists and then pulling those apart Amazing. Uh, and bringing them back. So I think jazz provides the perfect vehicle for that exploration and i have to say every time i i do find the time to play it leaves me with a warm glow it really does i love it i love it well this has been amazing i want to ask you a couple sort of nutty questions here that i ask all of my guests uh the one that uh creates uh, a lot of difficulty to share is what was the first album that you purchased the artist and the album that I bought that really stayed with me was Thriller by Michael Jackson. I, that was a really interesting album and one that I really got into and found myself listening to repeatedly and then playing and then trying to play it in different ways. So yeah, probably Thriller Michael Jackson going back into the, awesome. uh, into the early 1980s. Awesome. And then what about your favorite concert that you've attended? My favorite concert has to be... Um, one with the, with the late Chick career. I know he passed away sadly quite quite recently, but I, I went to see him play at the Barbican in East London with Gary Burton, Vibes player, when I was a young undergraduate. And I just remember sitting there and how much that blew me away and how much that in, inspired yeah. me. I mean, it the memory stayed with me forever. So Chick is really in the sweet spot of the sort of music that I enjoy listening to. Awesome. Uh, and then the last question, when your travels, you've probably met some very, very exciting, interesting people. And can you share any starstruck moments that you had? <laughs> Just over a decade ago, I was um, asked by the International Management Group to work on a big project that involved live music for a half marathon. So positioning bands around a, a half marathon course to inspire and entertain the runners and, and the crowds. And we organized this huge event in uh, East London around the O2 Arena in, in Greenwich called Run to the Beat. And um, I was looking for artists to hire <laughs> to play on the various bandstands. And I was scratching my head thinking, who might we get on the main stage? And I, I'd heard about this um, up and coming rap star from uh, Southwest London called Tiny Temper. He didn't have much of a reputation then, but it's, you know, I, I was getting the vibe that he was up and coming we got him on the main stage and he literally drew thousands of people to this event i mean it was a sports event not a not a music event and people were just going nuts a few weeks later he had his first number one hit in the billboard chart so that uh, sometimes I, I try and take the credit for discovering tiny temple though <laughs> he had he had his own momentum it was just uh uh, fortuitous, I think, that uh, we got him for that event a little bit before he became massively famous. 
Maybe you've got a uh, a second job opportunity as an A and R uh, person for uh, maybe, but he's he's a lovely uh, and uh, humble guy, and I'm I'm really glad that he's been so successful through the years. Oh, well, terrific, Professor Costas Georges, Thank you so much for being on the show. You are a lovely, humble guy too, and we're so lucky to have you on the show. And my goodness, I I hope we can have you again. That would be a pleasure. Thank you for the invite, and see you soon. Thanks for listening to Voices Behind the Music, a Growth Network podcast production presented by Feed Media Group. We're on a mission to make it easy, fast, and legal for businesses to use music to power the most engaging customer experiences. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours and learn more about us at feedmediagroup.com.